often happens to me that um, regardless of what I plan to talk about or how I plan to start, uh, I come in and look around and I realize there's something I need to say first. And it usually has to do with how excited I am about being here and how excited it is to look at all of you excited to hear a Dharma talk. And I'm um, remembering Eugene saying the other day that listening to a Dharma talk is a practice. Everybody's sitting up, everybody's excited. I remember thinking to myself, I remember discovering that it was a practice over some period of time. In the beginning, I just thought it was odd a little bit that um, at the Dharma talk time when uh, finally it's kind of more relaxed and it's a little bit more stimulus input than the whole rest of the day, uh, which seemed to me first like a little bit of a break, I would look at all the teachers sitting up next to the teacher who was giving the Dharma talk. They were all sitting in the very same posture that they sat in all day. And in the beginning I thought that was odd. And what's more, I thought it was a little stiff of them because they usually didn't laugh at the funny parts either. They just sat there. Then I realized that one of the reasons they didn't laugh at the funny parts is they'd heard those stories so many times. It wasn't any great equanimity. The funny parts weren't so funny anymore. But I really got it after a while that there was a quality of attentiveness that one brought to the experience of listening to a Dharma talk, which was an ascent, but another form of paying attention. That when you think about what we're doing all day, is we're setting up the proper conditions, conditions within which we might hope for a revelation, an insight. You cannot get up in the morning and say, "Today I'm going to have a revelation." It just doesn't work that way. But you can get up in the morning and say, "Today I'm going to do everything possible." to set up the conditions within which insight might arise. And that's really what we're doing with this form. Every part of this form, the sitting and the walking and the doing it slowly and the coming on time for sittings and staying the whole sitting and everything that we do that looks like a, a rule is a rule that's worked in terms of supporting the arising of insight. Even the rule, the, the Buddha had a rule about don't lie down in a Dharma talk. Uh, I'm looking around to see that nobody's lying down. If you have a really serious medical condition, a physical condition that requires it, of course. But his sense was that you bring as much awakened consciousness to hearing Dharma as you can. As a matter of fact, what used to thrill me the most about listening to uh, early the teachings of the Buddha, um, the early stories of his teaching after his own enlightenment, he would go from place to place and usually the stories read, and he came here and uh, this and this many people came to hear him. And he explained the truth of how things are, that they're impermanent, that life is fundamentally unsatisfactory because of its um, ephemeral nature, that there was nothing to hold on to. There was a place of continuing comfort except an open and compassionate heart, that all things are interconnected, that everything we do makes a difference, that everything matters. And the thrilling thing about reading those stories is that they very often ended by saying, and as he spoke, X many people 
became fully enlightened. Large numbers of people. Five people got enlightened. Eighty people got enlightened. Numbers of people got enlightened just by listening to a Dharma talk. And it would say, and there the spotless, immaculate vision of the truth arose in their heart, their minds, and their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints. That means from then on, they didn't get stuck in greed and hatred and delusion. Those were so thrilling, those stories. I used to think about those stories when I sat down to listen to a Dharma talk. However much hubris that was to think it, I thought to myself, there is a precedent for people getting completely free just by listening to a Dharma talk. And that inspired me to sit up and to listen. I actually had the theory, I had the theory that the Buddha gave the sermon on the four foundations of mindfulness and the metta sutta because for a lot of folks they didn't become enlightened just by listening. I feel they were remedial uh, teachings. Everybody else he just told and they got it and then I imagine at some point he said to himself, a certain number of people aren't getting it. So for them I will now preach this sermon and see if they can, if I break it down into four parts if they'll catch it. I don't know, of course, that just may be my own pedagogy. That's, But I think that's what we're doing here, is we're setting up the conditions. And uh, what I hope that we do tonight is inspire you to really look at the form as a possibility to help really reinforce the conditions into which revelation and mindfulness can arise. Had a week to settle down and get comfortable place is familiar, the schedule is familiar. You might be comfortable, which I'd be happy to hear. You know, people are coming in and saying, I, uh, I got used to sitting, my body doesn't hurt so much. One of the um, really important turning points in my own practice came several years into my practice um, I wouldn't have thought I wasn't diligent before then. I loved to go to retreats, and I'd go. And after the initial ones where I began to catch on to the form, began to be reasonably comfortable. I could sit still reasonably comfortably. And as I've more or less followed the structure, I sat and walked and sat and walked. I didn't internally follow the instructions so closely as bring your attention to the breath use the mental notes, try to be with the breath. Kind of did the outer form, and inside I told myself lots of stories. I actually like to tell stories, and I even amuse myself with my own stories, and I told lots of stories over and over again, my own stories, those planned things to do that I hadn't yet done. And one day, seven years into my practice, I was walking along, on a path, and uh, past um, coming towards me were uh, my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, and someone else, I don't know who. They were involved in a conversation. As they passed me, I didn't hear the conversation. I didn't hear the, the comment that this other person had made to Joseph, which prompted his response, which I heard just as I passed him in an opposite direction. And to whatever this person had said or asked, Joseph said, well, you know, actually, 
Nothing is worth thinking about. I thought to myself, I spend all my time thinking. And I also thought, wait a minute, Joseph's a pretty good thinker. He thinks, I really admire the way he thinks. And I've spent a whole life thinking. I admire the way I think. But nothing is worth thinking about. So I went back and sat, and I took a vow on thinking. Now, you can't take a vow on... um, You can't take a vow on cognition. You don't want a vow on cognition. What I took a vow on was a vow on telling myself stories. I took a vow on stories. I will not tell another story. And in order to do that, because you can't just make the vow and it magically happens, is I determined to not let my attention move from my breath. I just could determine that. And I sat down, and I seriously did not let my attention waver from the breath. I sat ferociously. I actually sat with a very tense posture, and I would not let my attention move from the breath. And in very short space of time, my whole experience changed. My whole experience changed. My level of consciousness got much more radically altered. My perception of the breath and everything else got much changed. My experience of rapture was tremendously heightened. My whole practice changed, probably within that very afternoon maybe within that very first sitting. There are two points to that story. One I'll tell you now, and one I'll tell you at the end. Two ways to go with that story. Years later, it really was the beginning of a very important, really, but I I count my practice as having begun from then. I think before that time, I was visiting retreat centers and having a good time. They're they're pleasant places to be. The food is good. The schedule is very relaxing. It's kind of like a rest cure. It's okay. I don't think I had a lot of wisdom in those years. I just more or less had a little bit of a rest cure, which isn't a bad thing. But I don't think that I really saw things very clearly or in a clearer way than I had. It was really the beginning of seeing with a tremendous stunned surprise, really, that what my teachers had said, what I had enjoyed hearing about so much in Dharma talks, but you really can see the truth of unsatisfactoriness, the truth of impermanence, the truth of uh, the way that uh, suffering is the uh, reflection of clinging and how there is clinging all the time. We finish clinging here, we're clinging there. That It's really like one cling after another and discovering that, seeing that really moment to moment, that you really could see that the separate self artifact that we imagine lives inside of us is not there and that everything is really connected to everything else and lawfully conditioned by and a lawful conditioner of everything else and that you could see that is actually true. Those very insights that I heard about and sort of got you really begin to see because they're right there in every moment. You have to wait for the right time. You have to have the right eyes. So I really count the beginning of my practice with that day of taking that vow. I am seriously going to do this. Some years later, I guess really many years later, 
when I was in the teacher training program with some of my colleagues, um, I told them about that story because we talked about our own practice and talked about how we were beginning to teach other people. And I said, I took a vow on stories. And I remember somebody said to me, you know, that doesn't sound very much like the instructions we hear or give in Vipassana practice, you know. You hear the instruction when you discover that the mind is filled with stories. In that moment, gently bring the attention, let go of the stories, gently bring the attention back to the breath. But none of that vows on stories. You know, stories come, you notice, in the moment of noticing, the attention is free put the attention back on the breath, gently let the attention return. I said, that didn't work for me, the gently business. I had to take a vow. Otherwise, I'm such an inveterate storyteller, I'd still be telling stories. So when I tell people that, I always hope when I tell a group like this, that a good number of you tomorrow will sit down. In 10 minutes, we'll practice it. We'll sit down. You'll take a vow and you'll just be with the breath. It's a choice. It doesn't have to be a choice that's done aversively or angrily. It's just a choice. You do it, you do it. Doesn't every once in a while mind fills with thoughts? You make another choice again, you make another choice again. We can choose. There are five particular factors of mind that are the factors of enlightenment. When I first heard about them, concentration and calm and equanimity and rapture and investigation and energy and mindfulness, that in the mind of a fully realized person, these factors are always completely present and filling the mind, I thought, I'm never going to get there. I'm nowhere near that. But the notion that they would be spontaneously present in the mind after enlightenment was balanced by the teaching that until such a time as they are spontaneously part of a clear mind, we can cultivate them. We don't have to wait for them to be there. We can determine to build them into our experience. And really what this practice is and what the form supports is the building of all of those factors of enlightenment. We want the mind to be awake and clear so that those truths will be available to us so that our hearts will be changed, will be a little bit more compassionate, a little bit more forgiving. I've been having such a good time today in the interviews because pretty nearly everyone in the interviews told me about the ice cream for dinner last night. (laughs) The ice cream was such an important teaching for everybody about the dukkha of experience. Because here, I I wasn't here for supper last night, so I didn't know that there was hot soup and cold ice cream. (laughs) And so everyone immediately had to make a choice. Should I take the ice cream now and it might melt while I'm having the hot soup? Or should I leave the ice cream until later and hope that there'll be enough? Maybe they'll take the ice cream away. And... uh, But if I take the ice cream now, it'll melt in the bowl while I'm having the soup, if I'm having the soup mindfully. But if I eat the soup in a hurry, then the ice cream will still be frozen. But then I'm not being mindful. Maybe I should eat the ice cream first, but then I won't feel like the soup, and then the soup will have gotten cold. 
and the amount of mental pyrotechnics that goes on around what to do with the soup and the ice cream was phenomenal. Someone said if we had like a dukkha meter in the uh, <laughs> dining room, it would probably have been off the scale on the ice cream and the soup, which I think is wonderful. I was going to tell the cooks, by all means, not to take that story to mean not to serve the ice cream, to have more ice cream, because you can see <laughs> how the mind gets hysterical over the ice cream and the soup. You imagine we have to go out and do a whole life. There's a much more complicated than that. So you see that you don't have to go far to see dukkha. You know, you're just in the supper. What should I do? I'll give up the soup. I'll have the ice cream. I won't have the ice cream. But I'm supposed to be on a diet. Why am I eating ice cream? This is too much. So all you have to do is be awake to the fact if you're paying attention, it's not just enough to have the flurry. You have to have the flurry and you have to have a mind that's clear enough to say, look at the flurry that's going on over the ice cream. It's nothing and the mind's a complete flurry. And I'm not any different from anybody else. Probably this whole room is in a flurry. And what is the whole world doing over much more complicated situations than ice cream? And when we realize that, really what it does is it makes us compassionate. Do you know when I said the other night about um, my grandfather's expression about it's very hard to be a decent human being, it's very hard to be a person, and I said it, it, it was his equivalent, I think, of the first noble truth, that life is suffering. The other thing that the Buddha taught is that this particular realm of a human being, a person, is the only realm from which you can really wake up. It is very hard to be a decent human being that responds with kindness and compassion, aware of the needs of other people. But it's the only realm, he said, from which we can wake up. There's enough joy in it, enough pleasure in it to keep us awake, and enough pain in it to keep us aware of the truth of suffering, and enough possibility of balance for the compassionate heart to manifest itself. So it's really a great opportunity in human life. Let's talk a little bit about those uh, factors of enlightenment. It's important because sometimes people have a notion about what it is. If, if you say, how's your practice? They say, oh, it's good, it's good. And mostly it is good. I mean, I'm happy when people think that, but there's some sort of a, a view that I sometimes hear that the more um, concentration, the better. The more concentration, the better, if it is balanced with attentiveness and alertness. Sometimes if people say, I want to deepen my practice, I do too, but I could also say it as I want to heighten my practice or widen my practice. Deepen sometimes sounds subterranean, like somehow we'll get mesmerized. I remember getting a little bit mesmerized by my practice after I took this vow on stories. I finally got to be able to keep my attention pretty much focused with the breath. It was a pleasure. It was so lovely. I could sit for long periods of time, in, out, in, out. 
Somebody once asked Ajahn Shah how long should uh, a person sit every day. Ajahn Shah was Jack's teacher in Thailand. Ajahn Shah said, doesn't matter how long you sit. He said, I have seen chickens sitting on their nest for days. They don't become enlightened. So that how long you sit and how steady the attention is a piece of it, but it's not the whole thing. I remember coming to my teacher Joseph and being so proud of myself. I can sit in, out, in, out. I feel really good. I'm warm. My body doesn't hurt. No thoughts are arising. He said this is. He said that it didn't uh, in any way disparage my practice. He said this is very good. You're about halfway to seeing something now. Now you got here. Now that you're here, look around. So the first thing is to get here. Stop the forward linear motion. Be able to rest in this moment. Once you rest in this moment, you have to pay attention to it. Otherwise, you're just here. But just here isn't enough. Here and paying attention. Tranquil and alert is the balance. So when you think about those... um, uh, factors of enlightenment. The seventh one is actually listed as mindfulness, and it's actually the balance of the six other ones. And the six other factors have three composing factors, calm and concentrated and equanimity. And the three others are energizing factors. They are rapture and investigation and energy. And you really can work with yourself as a practice tool to really strengthen one or another. You know, when we listen to you in interviews, when I listen to you, if I see a person is very, very concentrated, but not very lively in terms of seeing things, I'll give them some instructions to kind of wake up the attention without disturbing the concentration. And if I see people are quite alert, but really not at all in a grounding of composure or equanimity, I'll give some instructions for how to augment that. And they, you know, they're relatively obvious. You could imagine them yourself. If people come and say, I'm sitting three hours in a stretch and I'm alert and I'm seeing this and this and this, that's great. If people say, I'm sitting three hours in a stretch and I'm very, very calm and focused, I'm likely to say to them, that's great, sit for three hours and then walk for three hours. Just do something that will energetically balance and maybe bring some attention. Or as you're sitting in those three hours, see if you can bring your attention to different parts of your body. Move your attention through your body. Or notice particular things about the moment of the arising of the breath or the moment of the passing away of the breath. You don't actually have to physically move a lot. Although the form here of balance, sitting, and walking has built into it a corrective for too much somnolence or too much distraction. You could just even sit. If your body was completely comfortable, you could sit and with using your attention, keep the mind alert and awake. So that's really what we're listening to when we listen in interviews. This way a little bit too much, you say, okay, do a little bit more of this. This way a little bit too much, it's okay, do a little bit more of that. And then it balances itself, just from being here day after day. This is a remarkably wonderful form. 
I thought we could practice some of those factors together. Could practice a little bit concentration. You all know the experience of being really concentrated. Um, If you're at the bedside of someone who's having a baby, mind does not, your attention does not wander from that experience. If you're at the bedside of someone who's dying, your attention doesn't wander. Sometimes it's less dramatic. If you get on an airplane in San Francisco and you're flying to Boston and you start a Ludlam novel, all of a sudden you're landing in Boston and you have no idea that six hours went by. If you're skiing, you concentrate. If you don't concentrate, you lose your balance, you fall down. We have all had the experience of concentrating. If you play music, you concentrate. Otherwise, you lose your place. Let's sit. You don't have to change your posture. Sit wherever you're sitting, but close your eyes. When we do this, what we'll do is we'll breathe 10 breaths. Pay attention from the very beginning of the first breath (coughs) to the very end of the 10th breath. Do not let the attention be anyplace else. Try not to let the attention move to anything else. And the way I do, the reason I do 10 breaths is because I don't count them. I do them on my fingers. Then I don't have to remember what number I'm up to. And I have two methods for doing it. I either start with my fingers open and close each finger as I pass a breath, or I start with them closed and open them. So it's a very handy way of counting without having to remember what number you're up to. So having told you my secret practice device for counting, close your eyes. You're on your own. Ten breaths, no wandering attention.
As long as you've done that, don't open your eyes. We'll use that heightened concentration to really appreciate the vibrancy of the body, the sensations of the body that are always there, part of being alive, that become more apparent, become heightened in our awareness when the attention is focused. As you sit, if you bring your attention to your left hand, probably lights up in your awareness. You feel something about it, where it is, its lightness, its heaviness, its tingling. Or if I were to say, bring your attention now to your uh, right ear. By and by, you'd probably feel your ear. Bring your attention to the top of your head. And then let your attention move down through your body, around your head, in the front and the back, feeling the sensations in the forehead and your brow, and your eyes and your ears. In your nose, your mouth, and your jaw and your chin, and your shoulders. Tension come down through your torso. Let your tension come down through your torso. And your arms. You can move the attention down one arm, down the other arm, and down the length of your torso. And feel the pressure on your bottom, 
however you're sitting on your pillow or on your chair. And through your thighs and through your legs. Feel your ankles and your feet wherever they are. Then let your attention move so that it holds your whole body in awareness of whole body sitting from the top of your head through your feet in whatever configuration you are, sitting on the floor, kneeling, sitting on a chair, Feel the vibrancy of the whole body. Tingling, vibrating, pulsing, throbbing, heavy, light, warm, cool. Space filled with body sensations, physical sensations, that all come together to a sense of a body. Perhaps in the middle of that whole space of the body, that whole tremendous range of different physical sensations. Amidst all of the different physical sensations, you can feel the particular set of sensations that constitute the coming and going of the breath quite on its own. Arising and passing away You can use that awareness of that particular subset of physical sensations, the arising and passing away of each breath, all on its own, within the greater constellation of physical sensations, at the belly or at the chest or at the nostrils. as a way of continuing to confirm the composure in the mind. And then by just increasing the in-breath just a little bit more, in an intentional way, we develop the sense of calm, cultivate tranquility, In the Sutta on the Foundations of Mindfulness, the Buddha says, 
the practitioner sitting down takes a long breath in and thinks taking a long breath in I calm my body taking a long breath out I calm my body we can take some time to take perhaps five full breaths long in and out re-establish composure we can then bring another enlivening factor to the mind adding the factor of investigation when I practiced with Upandita as my teacher he would say every day when you come tomorrow tell me three new things about the in-breath or tell me three new things about the out-breath. It was clear to me that he didn't want me to know breath very well. He wanted me to stay awake. So as we sit, see if you can bring that state of investigatory attention to the next Ten breaths. Discover something new about the in-breath or the out-breath or the space between the breaths.
you bring the attention to finding something new, that sense of looking more deeply at just what's happening may let you know something else about just what's happening. Perhaps your breath slowed, or perhaps your body temperature changed. Perhaps you got warmer or cooler. We bring a sense of heightened attention with a particular question. Let me see something new about the in-breath. But we might see all kinds of new things about other things as well. Continuing to develop the factor of equanimity as a way of re-establishing composure. Keeping in mind that attentiveness to what's happening and knowing it, accompanying the knowing with a name that recognizes it, seems to be one of the conditions that balances the mind and re-establishes balance in the mind. One of the very early research projects about meditation showed that mindfulness practitioners who named their experience when their brain waves were taped would register changes in their brain wave patterns when sounds happened or thoughts happened different mind events arose, but they would very quickly smooth out. And their shared practice was naming. You can sit for some more breaths. Name the experience of the breath or the experience of anything else that arises predominantly in your experience. This is a feeling, this is a thought, This is a sensation, this is another breath, it's another thought. We'll sit for a minute or two. Sixth of the factors of enlightenment is the factor of energy or zeal, which in my experience is most augmented by some sense of beginning to master some techniques of practice. If at all, as we sat, you could concentrate for some of those ten breaths, if you could feel the rapture in your body when you brought the attention to it, 
if you could feel the calm as you took slightly longer breaths or see something new as you investigated if you could name a few things as an act of knowing and meeting that knowing with recognition and you could bring the energy of pleasure about that I can do this can sit to feel that pleasure. One of the ways to feel pleasure, we realize something that makes us pleased in our mind, we could smile. A very immediate way for energizing your body, your mind and your practice is to sit up a little bit and smile. We'll sit for one more minute, remembering that we have practiced concentration and rapture and calm and investigation and equanimity and energy, and they they all come together as this quality of balanced, open, awake, intimate, accepting, recognition of one moment after another, now and now and now. Let's sit in this minute with the expectation that we'll see in a particularly clear way. One way of practicing is to say to yourself, may the clearest understanding I've ever had arise for me in these moments. Sometimes I say to myself, may the clearest understanding of impermanence or of suffering or of emptiness sometimes I just say, may my clearest understanding arise now and I expect it. Let's just do that for a minute.
in a minute I'll, in a moment I'll ring the bell and let's do the bell as a practice as well so you can use this place of really alert attention to recognize the experience of hearing that arises is present then it passes away in any moment we could any of us wake up In the very beginning, I said that there were two ends to the story of my passing Joseph on the walkway and him saying what was for me a transformative remark, nothing is worth thinking about. And I told you path A and my vow on stories and how it changed my practice and how I told my friends and what we're meant to do here, which is really to stop the story so that we can in fact see clearly what's happening. To stop the story and keep the attention awake so we can see those truths of impermanence, the truths of struggle around every tension of clinging and the truth that there is nothing separated from anything else, but that all experience is experience arising and passing away according to conditions, as a result of conditions, causing other experiences to arise or pass away. Nothing at all that's separate from anything else. So when I told Joseph that story, Years later, I said, thank you so much for that remark. When you said nothing is worth thinking about, really changed my practice. And I told him how. He said, maybe that wasn't what I meant. He said, maybe what I meant is nothing is worth thinking about. (laughs) So there's another piece of that story because... You remember the other night when I told you a story and I said that somebody here practicing in a moment of really valuable insight about how complicated life was and how difficult, how hard it is. She said, uh, nothing is going to make it less hard, right? So I agreed because it was the right time to agree. 
I want to say nothing is going to make it less hard. (laughs) But that's a whole other talk. So I really want to encourage you to work very hard. We've taken a week to all of us come here and settle down. Everybody knows where their room is, what the meals are like, what the weather is like. We've had it all. You know how to work the system at this point. Now is the time to let the system work for you. Really do it. These are not arbitrary rules. We could wake up in the supermarket or on the freeway. It is a possibility. But this is a very special set of circumstances. And they don't guarantee revelation, but they are a very good setup for it if you really use it. Please hold the silence. Please keep the custody of the eyes. Please do the schedule. Please come on time for the sittings. Um, If you have a job and you're late uh, because of the job, do not hurry because it doesn't, there aren't any more revelations in here than there are outside. Walk slowly, walk in the walking room, sit outside on the bench, go sit in the council hall. Paying attention is the same wherever you do it. But do it. One of the things that made my practice much more effective, I thought, was my continued attempts to simplify my life. I did less things in an already schedule where there's hardly anything to do. I did less things. I stopped thinking of the morning as a sitting period and a walking period and a sitting period and a walking period. I thought of it as the morning. You ate, and then you practiced until lunch. And then by and by I began to think about the fact that you just practiced. The eating was a part of it, the sitting and walking was a part of it, and the going back and forth to all of them was a part of it. It is one long practice. Sitting at the Dharma talk is part of the practice. There is no downtime. And the truth is, it gets a little bit tighter, and all of you are discovering that, that we feel suddenly more vulnerable. Our issues come up. Our stories are so pressing. The pieces of moral inventory, which are the healing of the heart as it reveals its pain, which are supposed to happen, are happening. Nobody's doing it wrong. The fact that stuff is coming up is actually a sign that you're doing it right. Sometimes I look out, I see everybody sitting, and I think it's so wonderful. We all sit so calm of visage on the outside. And I know that everything is happening inside of everyone, but it's happening correctly. I imagine everyone as a kind of a pot of soup cooking away and bubbling away inside. And the lid is on, so you can't tell how much. All the pots look more or less the same. But all the soups are cooking away and coming to some wholesome end, really. So it's thrilling to be able to say that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. The refuge that people recite when they say, I take refuge in the Dharma. One of the ways of understanding that is I take refuge in the fact that there is a path for paying attention that works. This is the path. 
simplify, pay attention, keep a form, and the heart and the mind will reveal itself, and in the revealing be healed. And you're all doing fine. And that's it. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 21, 1999. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.